The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast brought to you from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, a New York-based columnist working from home across the Hudson in New Jersey. I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Reed Hastings, the co-CEO of Netflix. He's out with a new book that he co-wrote with Aaron Meyer called No Rules Rules. In August, we met over Zoom to talk about the book, which is about the culture of Netflix and how its workforce has made it such a success. It's my pleasure to welcome Reed to the program. One of the things that that jumps out at me in the book, really, is when I kind of think about it, is what at least I think about your management style or Netflix's management style is that it treats employees like adults. And I feel just in my own experience, not necessarily where I am now, but just in my career, usually you get to a a company and there's a whole set of rules. And I, I keep thinking, like, am I in school? any company can benefit from some of the things that you're talking about, right? I mean, why do you think that it's so hard for most companies to do that? Because the human instinct is when something goes wrong is to put a process in place so that that thing doesn't go wrong again. Yeah. And this was really my lesson in my first company, Pure Software, that you know we write about in the book, um, which is every time something went wrong, you, you don't want to repeat the same mistake. Um, so you put a process in place and what you don't recognize is in the long term, most of the culture is process adherence. The people who do well are those who follow the process and that the processes are very hard to change. So then again, the business changes in some way and you're not very flexible. You're very specialized for that one particular market. So again, the seduction, if efficiency didn't work, we wouldn't have masses of organizations going for efficiency. The subtle part is it does work in the short term. Okay. But it makes you rigid and very particular, you know, and sort of, again, you've got human, you know, factory workers essentially, right. To, to whatever degree. And so, and then, and that's why then we get new businesses rising once there's a shift in the market. Yeah. Um, So if you want to, the the point is to have each team thinking through in our business, we should be optimizing, you know, more for flexibility or more for efficiency or, you know, it's a complete continuum. Pure flexibility would be like absolute chaos. Like come in, do whatever you want. There's no direction, you know, that's like, you know, so that's at one extreme. And at the other extreme, you know, it's literally the factory um, and come in and, you know, uh, you know, uh, here's the task list. So, you know, most companies are on the spectrum, uh, but it's at least trying to make it clear that it is a spectrum and you should be conscious where you're trying to be. And then, you know, if you're going to have um, freedom then here's a set of things you need to do about talent density, about context that are essentially compensating um, or, you know, getting alignment of this, you know, group of people so that they work effectively together and it's not chaos, you know, sort of the kid soccer experience. Yeah. I mean, I have to say one of the passages I really enjoyed in the book was uh, towards the very beginning when you were talking about 
walking into the headquarters of Blockbuster. And, um, and it seems like, and, and maybe you can illustrate this a little more, but like this was kind of one of the defining moments of how you were going to go forward and manage. And, um, you know, a couple of things about that. One, I totally forgot that Blockbuster was owned by uh, Viacom. And, you know, Viacom was such a huge media conglomerate at that time. And you guys were just a tiny little tiny little company, right? I think in the book it was, you were, it was like Viacom was 5 billion and well, you were like 50 just, million maybe? Yes, that's right. But just Blockbuster was 5 billion. Viacom oh, just Blockbuster. More that? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, and now you're, even, and your market cap now is what, 200 billion somewhere in that ballpark? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So, but tell me about that experience because that, that is just, it's kind of, it's wild to think that, you know, you walked in there and you were like, please buy us. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we and didn't. always were afraid of them. They're so much yeah. larger. Um, and, um, you know, as we describe in the book, um, in hindsight, I now know that why they didn't buy us and didn't ever seriously consider it. But we thought, you know, if we were the online wing of Blockbuster, um, you know, then we could, uh, you know, serve customers and build a big business. And, you know, and half of they, they would own half. Um, and that would be acceptable. Yeah. Um, but you know, they were, they were very good at their business. <clears throat> there were many other firms in that area and they beat all of them through better service, better store location. They were really highly optimized and well run for stores. And the right. problem is if you get really good at one thing, it's clouds your judgment about other things. And, you know, <clears throat> so that, that I think that's basically what happened and there's always a danger for every company. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and that you say that, I mean, Netflix is really, really good at streaming, you know, content. So, I mean, how do you think of what's the next turn? And so do you feel like your company is now well positioned to see that coming or to tackle that coming now that, you know, you kind of have the structure in place? You can never tell in advance. I mean, the changes are often <clears throat> pretty radical. Yeah. Um, you know, what's the notion of entertainments? I would say the internet is very long term. Yeah. So it's really, it will movies and TV shows become small cultural phenomena like opera is today. So that's kind of the risk factor is that, mm -hmm. you know, movies and TV will be because gaming or, you know, augmented reality, you know, or smoke and weed, you know, just becomes yeah. what people do. And, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's like actually watching something is like not important anymore, yeah. you know. So you can have, you know, a lot of different substitutes that way that, you know, are, are challenging. Um, but as long as movies and TVs, you know, are strong, we'll continue to hone that muscle of getting better and better at, you know, producing. And, you know, as you know, we produce all around the world. Yeah. And a big push is on international at this point and getting, you know, better at German films and Japanese series and, you know, Korean uh, horror films and, you know, just the, the wide variety. So, uh, you know, I was, I wanted to take off some of the things that, uh, where you don't have policies, and I guess that's probably the best way to say it. I mean, uh, unlimited vacation, I think Netflix is kind of famous for that. Um, yeah. The expense policies, the dreaded pips, you don't have those, the performance improvement plans. Um, yeah. but, but one thing I really want to talk about here is the salary and, and bonus and sort of your idea about sal salary transparency and going out into the marketplace and trying to 
figure out what, if, if I were to work at Netflix, for example, what I was worth in the open market. And it's such, um, it's such a radical idea, I think. Um, and one that I think is super important. I was kind of hoping you could talk, talk me through it because particularly right now in, in the age of disparity, as, as I will say, where women aren't paid the same as men very broadly, or, you know, if you're a person of color, you're not paid the same. And withholding that information from people um, sort of perpetuates the problem, I think. So talk about like how, how this works for you and, and how that kind of came about. That thing um, so let's see, uh, employees move between jobs um, and when they do, it's a kind of market transaction. In other words, um, they make a decision to go, the, the hiring employer decides what they're going to pay. And, um, and, you know, you can get, uh, if it's a rising market, you can get big uplifts when you change jobs. Yeah. And yet companies, you know, have these things like a 4% raise pool, okay, that they're going to, you know, divvy up and distribute because that's what fits into their budget. And so, you know, we're much more modeled on professional sports. And there the <clears throat> salaries are open. You've got a range of agents, you know, that help the yeah. players negotiate. And they know that a pitcher, you know, of this record, you know, got this here, got that there. And, you know, that's their job to kind of get, you know, some equivalent compensation. And so it's more open and more dynamic. Now you can also, you know, you can get, you, you get a lot of athletic compensation inequality, right? Because some people make, you know, 10 million and some people make, you know, 200,000. Right. So, um, <clears throat> but, you know, it's based on an open market. So it feels sort of okay for the player. Yeah, um, right. Because you know, and, right? Because you know, kind of it's, it's all laid out for you. Yeah, no, I don't know. Although I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure the one who's making 200, you know, 200,000 would like to be making. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah, and then, yeah. you know, it's just that they're, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of people who want to break into, you know, professional soccer or football or whatever it is. Anyway, so the, think of that as the model of the, if, you know, super talented people working together is that professional sports team. So we try to take a bunch of inspiration um, from that. And then specifically, um, you know, like when we hire uh, women lawyers, it's possible that what their prior comp is is less because many law firms um, end up being discriminatory. Mm. Yeah. And so then we have to overlay that, you know, with our internal equity. Huh. Um, that is, if the market for women lawyers with, you know, uh, I will say some star litigator, you know, was lower than for men, you know, a pure market philosophy might say we should take advantage of that, you know, right. and pay our women internally less. And we don't do that. And so we're very explicit about <clears throat> when we think about the market, not sort of including the discriminatory or protected, you know, uh, aspect of it. Like we ask, you know, what because we're in the market a lot, what would a man make at this level? Yeah. And then, you know, we keep the, uh, I forget if it's in the book, but the internal compensation database um, is open to the top 1,000 leaders. 
Okay, so, you mean in the company, so anybody can go company. into the anybody can go into the database and see that. Well, anybody of those top one thousand, right? Of the top one thousand, yeah, uh, yeah. one thousand can look through and sort of see what anybody is making. Why? Uh, why just limit it to the top one thousand? It's a great point. I I wanted it to be open to everybody, and those t we put it to a vote of those top one thousand, and they said, "Oh, everyone else is you know can't handle it." Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So it was, okay. it was true, very true to form, true to form. You throw it out to democracy and democracy comes to back to you. That's right. And, you yeah. know, they were just like, people will be obsessed about, you know, this person, you know, two cubicles over that makes a thousand dollars more. Anyway, someday yeah. we may get there. It was just the top 100 for 10 years or so. And then we opened it to the top 1000 about four years ago. Okay. So <clears throat> it's one of many dimensions, you know, we're still learning and growing on. Okay. Um, so I wanted to actually turn to another thing that just recently happened. You uh, named uh, Ted uh, Sarandos as co-CEO. Uh, and so I'm curious when that happened, I mean, first of all, two CEOs is sort of an unusual construct to be, you know, two cooks in the kitchen, basically. Um, so did you apply what you lay out in the book about how decisions are made to that specific decision in terms I, yes. of like opening um, it up. Like, can you so, talk, take me through that? Yeah, it was probably a year and a half ago um, when I first brought it up with my directs of, you know, here's what we're thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then, you know, we talked it through and got a bunch of feedback and dwelled on it some more and spent also with the board of directors. Yeah. Um, so those are the two kind of constituent groups um, of what would be the pros and cons. So that we call it farming for dissent, you know, trying to figure out, OK, what would be better models? What might, what might else work? Um, should I just go away and, you know, put Ted in charge or yeah. how does it really work with two of us? Now, in practice, um, you know, across all corporations, of course, very few are run by, you know, dual CEOs. Right. But if you look at the set of people who have worked together for, you know, 20 years, it's actually pretty successful. So, um, you know, David Rubenstein was just telling me, you know, um, you know, of his firm and they have a similar thing of, you know, the dual CEOs, mm -hmm. which have, you know, grown up in the company together. And it allows you both to have sort of the authority externally, you know, with committing the company in various ways. Um, and as long as you're, you know, work super well with the other person, it's great. And, you know, intern, you know, it's about a month ago and internally it's been amazing. There's been kind of no change in the way we operate. Mm -hmm. People say, oh, it's not like any different. And yeah. that was sort of the point, which is Ted and I, um, have worked really well together for a long time. But I think your question is sort of, okay, did you discuss it with people? Did you farm for dissent? Yeah. Um, you know, what was the, even on something that sensitive? And the answer is yes, with first my, my directs. So that's set kind of top 10 people. And then with the top 20 people, um, and then, you know, eventually with the top, you know, 100 and then the whole company. Okay. And then I take it the board, does the board go through the same kind of process as well? In terms yeah, it's of a board like, decision. Yeah, uh, I mean, but so, I mean, like, does the board apply your management style and, and the, the no rules rules to board making decisions? Some, um, you know, in there, they're a collective committee. You know, we talk a lot about the informed captain having yeah. a single person. Um, but at the board level, the decision is so catastrophic to be right or wrong about, you know, who is CEO um, that, you know, the committee structure has evolved. 
Okay. Um, so it's, it's not a perfect match, I would say. I okay. mean, they're, they're very, um, uh, we call it, ext- you know, duty of care and duty of loyalty, sort of the board of directors tests. Anyway, it's legally what they're supposed to do. And the duty of care is that they're informed about what's going on. And we call it extreme duty of care that they're, you know, they come to management meetings, they audit them. um, You know, they read a lot of our internal documents and all of this stuff is relatively unheard of in Mm -hmm. fortune 500. There's a Stanford um, business school case on it. Um, If you do like a Netflix governance or something like that. So think of that as the equivalent of the culture deck for the board. Okay. is that governance. So it's not exactly the same, but it's basically a lot of the same motivating principles. Um, so one of the things that you do at the end of the book is you compare your culture deck to jazz, which I think is a really interesting comparison because it's, I love jazz. I love the, the, the genre of it, but it's also an extremely complicated, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely complicated form of music, right? And you really have to understand it to get it to play it, I should say. So, I mean, do you find that when you're kind of looking for employees, do they find trying to rewire their brains, so to speak, after being someplace else, coming into Netflix? You're, you're hiring it, a symphony player and an orchestra uh, yeah, member. Yeah, I mean, I mean it seems like it would be hard. I mean, even though there are no rules, rules, it seems kind of hard to get it certain in certain ways. Absolutely. I mean, we have, um, we invest a lot when new employees join us in helping them learn the culture. And it's part of why we published the original culture deck a, de- a decade ago, so that <clears throat> prospective employees could figure out if they want something like this. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to, well, it just pays a lot, so I'll do it. Yeah, but I'm sure, okay. yeah, that's true. But I'm sure you get people who are like, you know, dazzled by Netflix and... Yeah, so they, they right? want to do it. And then, you know, there is a skill. Uh, so almost everyone wants to be a good team player, but only a few people have developed the skills to where they can do a blind pass, you know, and anticipate where their teammates going to be or in the jazz equivalent of, you know, riffing back and forth within the structure. You know, it's not just chaos. Yeah. Right. It's like what I like about it is it compared to the orchestra, which is the metaphor for the, you know, centralized, you know, beautiful also like centralized, coordinated, amazingly synchronized. Right it also can generate beautiful music, but it's not very flexible. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, for the jazz paradigm for us, it's people being highly skilled and thinking through how they work together and how they, um, you know, effectively interplay. Okay. And, and so, you know, finally, it's, this seems like a great structure to have in place during the pandemic, right? Because all of a sudden companies find themselves in the situation where like their employees are not centralized. There's, you know, much less control than they normally would have. Um, Where do you see kind of the whole idea of work going after this? Do you think it'll kind of go back to where it was? I mean, there are a lot of different thoughts on this, but what are your thoughts? Where do you think post-COVID Where's the I work? think, <clears throat> and Netflix, we've always tried to focus on what makes people productive mm-hmm. and where do they do their best work. So with the unlimited vacation, <clears throat> it's partially because, you know, people uh, can get very relaxed and stimulated and, and be fresh after a vacation or, or during they might have their best ideas. So we're trying to inspire people rather than supervise them. 
And in COVID, it's brought forth that, that in fact, you know, if you can let people work more how they want, mm-hmm. um, then they can be super productive. But, you know, providing people flexibility yeah. to work from home on their terms when they want or, or to work from, you know, the mountaintop, you know, right. it's like, uh, but it, we're, we're always very flexible and just focused on what helps people be productive. Okay. All right. Great. Well, Reed, thank you so much for uh, coming on the exchange. I appreciate it. That's our program for this week. Thank you to Reed Hastings for taking the time to chat with me. Also, hats off to our producer, Freddie Joyner. Be sure to subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast of Userroom on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your audio fixes. Also, don't forget to check out breakingviews.com. Thanks for listening.